Welcome to the Littoral Zone podcast. I'm your host, Phil Rowley. The Littoral Zone, or shoal area of the lake, is a place where the majority of the action takes place. My podcast is intended to do the same, put you where the action is to help you improve your stillwater fly fishing. On each broadcast, I, along with guests from all over the world, will be providing you with information, tips and tricks, flies, presentation techniques, along with different lakes or regions to explore. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please feel free to email me with your Stillwater-related fly fishing questions and comments. I do my best to answer as many as we can prior to each episode, just before the main content. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy today's show. This is Dave, your Wet Fly Swing podcast host, Phil Roy, back for another huge episode of the Littoral Zone today. This is our chance to break down stillwater fishing from one of the best, so you have the tools you need for success this season. Without a doubt, stillwater fly fishing is most popular in Western Canada and the United States, but there's also the possibility to experience good stillwater fly fishing in other regions of North America. I'm often asked about techniques, tactics, and flies for eastern stillwaters too. So much so that after spending time in the east, both fishing and providing stillwater schools, it is now one of my featured presentations for the eastern-based fly fishing shows I present at in Marlborough, Boston, and Edison, New Jersey. Whenever I fly into these cities, I'm always amazed by the number of lakes I see below and the opportunities they could offer. Joining me today is Lauren Williams. Lauren lives in western New York State and loves to fish eastern stillwaters. He's also a successful, accomplished competition fly fisher. He recently participated in the World Masters Fly Fishing Championships held this past fall in British Columbia, Canada. He and his fellow U.S. teammates finished second overall, and Lauren finished within the top 10 amongst the individual anglers. Today, Lauren and I are going to have an in-depth discussion on eastern lakes, what makes them slightly different than western still waters that many of you may be familiar with. We're also going to talk about the gear, flies, and tactics Lauren uses whenever he's on the water. This episode is going to be chocked full of information. Be sure to pay attention to some of Lauren's tactics and techniques, such as the rubber band retrieve. I'm looking forward to talking with Lauren about his stillwater experiences, and especially his approach to fly fishing eastern stillwaters. But before we get started, let's talk a little bit about indicator leader setup in today's Stillwater Question. Today's question is a good one. It comes from Craig, who after watching the Orvis uh, Guide to Fly Fishing video I did on advanced stillwater techniques, he had a question regarding the proper leader setup for fishing with an indicator. And this is really important because if you use a standard tapered leader, you're not going to have your leader perform in the way you need to, so your fly sinks directly below the indicator. So here's the response I gave to him. The leader I use for the foundation of my indicator rigs is Rio's indicator leader, either a 2X or 3X leader. The indicator leader is typically a tapered leader, but only has a short butt section that is approximately three feet long. The balance of the leader is level, so it sinks straight down vertically below the indicator. This is the key to a proper indicator presentation. I place the indicator right on the transition between the short butt section and the level portion of the leader. The short butt section provides support between the fly line and indicator, which aids casting. It's also nylon, so it tends to lay on the water surface, which aids in the hook set once the strike is recognized. 
A level fluorocarbon leader sinks, which can delay your hook set when fish are taking softly. The thicker butt section also won't bite into or damage your fly line like a finer diameter leader would. As the level portion of the indicator leader is only 7 foot long, you need to add additional tippet to target deep water. I like my final tippet section to be 2 feet long. This helps the final tippet section from swinging like a pendulum beneath the small barrel swivels I use to connect the final tippet section to the balance of the leader. Using just a real leader and a two foot tippet section would allow me to reach nine feet in depth. Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey, but an adventure of a lifetime. From the convenience of Vancouver, BC, dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at northernrockiesadventures.com for an exclusive premium BC fly-in fly fishing trip. If I wish to fish deeper than 9 feet, I have to add a tippet section between the main indicator leader and my final 2 foot tippet section. The length of this middle tippet section is governed by how deep I want to fish. For example, if I want to fish 15 feet down, I would need to add a 6 foot midsection of tippet of equal or one size smaller than the indicator leader. The 6 foot length comes from subtracting 9 that's seven feet of level leader from the indicator leader plus the final two foot section of tippet from the depth of water I wish to target. So in this example, 15 feet less nine equals six feet. I call this midsection the adjustment zone. This is where I ebb and flow the leader length to reach the depth I wish to target. I never fish a leader longer than is necessary so if I went from fishing deep to shallow, I would shorten or completely remove the adjustment zone as required. Conversely, if I wanted to fish deeper, I would have to add a tippet section or add tippet to the mid the adjustment zone rather to the, of the leader. You never want to slide the indicator away from the fly line as this unbalances the leader, making the whole rig difficult to cast. You tend to overpower your cast, causing tailing loops, frustrating tangles soon follow. So I hope this all makes sense. Again, the key with any indicator presentation is keeping the leader between the indicator and fly thin and level to ensure it sinks straight down. A great question from Craig. Hopefully that helps everyone out. Most people think indicator fishing is just, oh, just stick an indicator on the leader, chuck it out there and wait for the pull down. But I would argue it is probably the most complex leader system out there, especially for my stillwater fishing. It's critical to make sure you have level leader between indicator and fly or flies. I've said it again and I just want to stress it. So I hope that helps you out. Okay, let's jump into this one and let Phil do his best mic drop as we head out onto the water. If you have questions anytime, you can reach out to Phil or me. You can head over to wetflyswing.com or check in with Phil. So joining us today on the Littoral Zone podcast is Lauren Williams. And Lauren, why don't you tell us, kick off a little bit and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you live? How long you've been fly fishing? What got you into fly fishing? Just the 
the story of Lauren, if you will. <laughs> sure, Phil. So I currently live in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is upstate about three hours from the city on the very southern border of the Adirondack State Park. I've been fly fishing for, if I'm doing math in my head correctly, probably 42, 43 years since I was single digits. Um, my father and I uh, spent most of our weekends fishing various native brook trout streams and various lakes in Pennsylvania. Um, he did not fly fish, but he'd had a fly tying kit. And I remember when I was about six or seven years old, I used to like to go down and get into his kit and and I would tie uh, crappy jigs for ice fishing and fishing the rivers. And I, th I thought that was cool. And he had an old uh, George Harvey fly tying manual. So I would go through that and tie every fly in there to the best of my ability with the materials he had available. And just kind of eventually from there started fishing them. Um, not always for trout, but just fishing those flies, local ponds, um, you know, wherever I could and kind of, kind of going from there. So since I was, you know, seven or eight years old, I would fly fish to some degree, got really serious about it when I went to college at Penn state and lived in that environment in the central part of Pennsylvania, um, met the guys that were locals down there and got to know them and, been there ear, so I really got passionate about it. Plus, I had a roommate in college that that fly fish, so we would spend a lot of our free time traveling around uh, central and north central Pennsylvania fly fishing. That's really where the the serious part of it got to me. So from that point on, you know, the late eighties until now, it's been a big part of my life. Did you get a chance to, you know, Penn State's famous for? Correct me if I'm wrong. For its fly, they have a fly fishing program there. Do they not? They do. They have a whole fly fishing curriculum. Yes, I did partake in that. Um, Vance McAuliffe was teaching the class at that time. Uh, Joe Humphreys had um, retired from it. I think Vance was his first predecessor. I could be wrong in that. Um, so yeah, it was we we learned a lot about entomology and fly tying and and the fishing part of it. So it's a pretty well rounded curriculum um, that I thoroughly enjoyed. So in a way, fly fishing um, was a credit course, was it? It was, yeah. It was a it was a physical education course. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, you're actually. I think most people probably go fly fishing to escape school, and you're actually managed to make it take it to your advantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, it's you know, I think you know George Daniel is now the dean of that mm -hmm. curriculum. I think um, he's a, a a good friend of mine, and they they have an active fly fishing club that I've been the been honored to speak at a couple of times back when I was guiding and speaking. So it's pretty well entrenched um, in that part of the part of the state. And it's done a lot of good things for the area and for the college and for the, the young anglers going through that curriculum. So I'm glad it's still going and, and going strong. That's pretty cool. So you, you fly fish and then you, you got into the competitive side of things, didn't you? I did. I did kind of unknowingly got into the competitive side of it. Um, in the early 2000s, uh i was i was a new guide trying to establish clientele had a lot of free time um was doing a lot of commercial tying just to, to kind of fluff up our income a little bit and somebody i forget who it was told me that hey i saw this contest in fly tire magazine that for uh the team usa fly tire and i was like i didn't know there was a team usa and uh got convinced to to uh, enter the contest, which I did, and um, ended up winning the thing. And the prize was I got to go with Team USA to the World Championships and Championships in Sweden in 2005. 
as part of the team. So I was a, not an angling member, but a team member. So that was really cool. So that was my first vision of what this was all about. Um, got to go over there for the full practice and hang out and get to know the guys. And Jack Dennis was the the uh, manager, was, or coach. Or- I guess he was the manager and coach. Yeah. Um, at that time, captain, I forget exactly what role he was when he was there, but so yeah, I got to meet a lot of the, a lot of the guys there and, um, kind of saw how the competition went. And I remember staunchly on the first morning, I would stay up all night and tie flies and the guys would get up early and get on the buses to go. And I would get to see them off. And I just thought, man, I want to be getting on the bus going off instead of watching somebody get on the bus and then going to bed. So I, I I told Jay Buckner. I remember telling Jay Buckner that I'm gonna I'm gonna get on his team because I want to get on the bus. <laughs> and, um, ended up doing that a couple of years later, and and here we are. You know, probably what is it, eighteen or nineteen years since that. Yeah. So that would have been about the time I had been. We got involved with the U.S. team, helping them out. Were you there when I did the um, presentation in uh, Durango, Colorado? Jack was. I was not at the presentation. I think I was a team member. I think that was for probably for the world team. Yeah, I think so. I was aware of it. I forget what capacity I was involved, but I was aware that that, that went on, but I was not at it. Yeah, because you and I have a lot of mutual friends and uh, Jeff Courier, George Daniel, you mentioned, Pete Erickson. I think yeah. Devin and Lance had just come on board at that time. Yeah. So got to know all those guys. Great experience. So back to the fly tying contest. Was it tying a single fly or how, how did that how did that go? It just sort of intrigues me what the contest was like to become the official fly tire for the U S men's senior team. So if I remember correctly, they had, they had a number of patterns to demonstrate ability. And then I had to, I had to research the area the team was going to and develop a pattern that I thought would be at least worthwhile to practice with based on the entomology of the area. And I think that was the, the, the most difficult because I was never, never been in Sweden. So I had to do a lot of research on, you know, the fish that they're going to catch and, what the bugs they ate and then come up with a pattern that was, you know, I thought would be effective without having any competition knowledge whatsoever. Um, didn't even know the rules or what any of it was about. So that's what I went with. I tied what they told me to tie and I, I did the research and wrote an essay and, and managed to win the thing. That's cool. That's cool. What was your fly for Sweden? What was it? A nymph, a dry? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, a kept basic, you know, like a Kelly green caddis nymph because a lot of racophilia caddis and that, yeah. that part of the world and that's pretty much all grayling eat arcadis because that's pretty much all that exists over there arcadis so they're arcadis specialists at least that's what my what my research told me so that's what i went with and um i was truly blessed to have been made aware of that competition and to get into it and and succeed in winning it because it opened up a whole new world for me no doubt absolutely um so then that takes you you wanted to get on the bus and then Sounds like you finally got on the bus. <laughs> yeah, so I came back, and that was that was the time that Jack had really started the qualification process. So we had to do regional qualifiers and produce there to get moved on to um, the, the national championships. And so it took you know it took time and money to go to these competitions and succeed so that you can progress to the next level. And I managed to do that, and I think I made the team. I believe it was the 2007 nationals in Boulder. 2006 or 2007, I think it was 2007. So there's a, about a year of qualifying to get to that point and um, finished well enough at the Nationals to get selected on a team. I think I think that was the year Devin made the team. Mm-hmm. Scott Robertson made the team. A um, bunch of the guys are just still still on a team now and, and that I fished with at Worlds are 
came onto the team at that nationals. Um, the team I went to Sweden with, that was Pete Erickson and um, Jeff was not there, but Jeff was certainly one of the spines of team USA at that point, but he wasn't in Sweden, but I met Pete there. Uh, Scott, Scott was also did really well in the fly time contest. And he was there as a, um, an auxiliary team member in Sweden. So I got to meet Scott and we developed a friendship from that point on. So how many content, how many um, competitions did you participate in? Oh boy. I don't know. Overall competitions. I can't count anymore. I've been to, um, so I've, I coached the youth team at two different world championships. I was on team USA, at two world championships and on the masters team for three world championships. Yeah. And you just finished competing in the world masters that was held in Kamloops, British Columbia earlier this year and checking the tables. You did pretty good. I thought. Yeah, we had a good, a good finish. We won the silver medal um, the year before we won gold. So we certainly wanted to, to, to re recapture that. And we didn't, it was a very, very tight, um, tight finish, but, but we did not fit win the gold, but we, you know, we're happy with the silver. Our team did well. Our captain, Pete Erickson did win the individual gold. So to bring home two medals from one competition is always a positive, but it was, it was a difficult competition. I mean, the organizers got thrown some interesting conditions that were beyond their control. And then you had the old end of September weather on the lakes there. So those are also um, nothing for the faint hearted like <laughs> angler to, to fish those conditions. No, no. What was, what was your final position? I recall it was pretty good. Yeah, I was, I was, I think I finished overall, I believe it was eighth or ninth. I know Brett and I were neck and neck. I think Brett edged me out with eighth and I got ninth. So yeah, I was, I was doing okay going into the last day in Tonkwa. Tonkwa, you know, got the best of me like it does a lot of people. Um, yeah, she's, she could be <laughs> a little moody. I have lots of it. And of course in competition, we fish Tonkwa recreationally totally different. Um, but yeah, talk to me about what was your impression, you know, being from Eastern North America, what was your impression of the lakes? So they were not my first, to be all honest. I fished those lakes, um, especially Tonkwa and Corbett, uh, a number of times in the past with the North American Lockstyle series that Tadoishi put on. So I've been up there a number of times. Those lakes were not unfamiliar to me. Um, I was looking really forward to fishing Roche because that's my favorite lake that I fished up there. And, of course, yeah. they had a winter kill, so we did not fish that. So I got to learn some new lakes. Um, canal flake was, you know, reminded me a lot of Roche. The fish were different, but, but the lake reminded me that the, the way it was laid out and the way it looked was most Roche like yeah. to me. So, you know, of those three lakes, I do love Tonkwa. And by the time the competition rolled around, the algae bloom had, you know, whacked off quite a bit by the time I got to it. So it was fishing a little more like its normal self. What was your best tactic? If you're willing to part with the uh, oh, I have I, I have <laughs> I have no secrets, Phil. Yeah, so I was in the boat with a silver medalist who um, uh, Mike Laramuth, who was, who ended up with the silver medalist, and he was my boat partner when we were second and third going into that session. So we buddied right up, and we both had the same plan. We wanted to hit the shrimp eaters in the shallow water, and we kind of knew we had it session five, so we kind of knew where all the other guys had been focusing and kind of. Logic played that those fish had seen enough that we should probably find some water that maybe it was less pressure. And we knew right out in front of the resort that that water is motored by, nobody fishes it. So we started right there, never left. We were into a lot of fish. We just couldn't keep them on. Imagine a place where a river meets your doorstep without breaking the bank. Introducing Jackson Hole Fly Company, redefining the online fly shop experience. 
JH Flyco designs and manufactures all of their own products so they can deliver high quality fly rods, reels, flies, and gear directly to your door at incredible prices. Whether you're a novice angler or professional guide, we think you're going to love Jackson Hole Fly Company. You can visit them right now at jacksonholeflycompany.com. I've got a good friend who actually owns a cabin right on that shore, and that's one of his favorite places to go. He just literally pushes out and almost drifts out there and just uh, works that, that shoreline. And you're right, everybody scoots by it, going to supposedly better areas. And I think that's an interesting comment, what you meant, because... You know, obviously, Mike was a competitor of yours, but, you know, I think a lot of people misunderstand competitions and think you're really out. Obviously, you're trying to outcompete your everybody else in a competition, but the importance of working together, even though you're technically competitors, is, is key, isn't it? It is. I mean, that's the viewpoint I take in the competitions with the boat is I want to work with my teammate and I want our boat to win the session. So if I'm second and my boat partner's first, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, you can do that consistently. You're going to finish well consistently in any competition. And you're just going to get a lot more feedback and a lot more information. You're going to figure things out as a team a lot faster than if you're working against each other. And then you get some kind of, you know, some shady things can happen if you're competing against the guy and you're sitting in the boat with. Um, so I prefer not to do that. I have been in that position and it's not enjoyable, but I know how that game is played too. Yeah. It's just not my preference. And I, I, I know Mike well enough. I knew he wouldn't want to do that. So we just said, Let's just go win this thing and let's get Mike his medal. And we did that. So I'm happy about that. He's such a good angler and such a nice guy. I'm, I'm really happy for his finish. Um, we just had a hard time keeping fish on. <laughs> we were into so many fish and they just would not stay buttoned. <laughs> what was your, uh, what was the best tactic? Lines, uh, flies, that kind of thing? Well, so we started with a mix of lines. He was a little heavier than me. I started with an intermediate line. I knew the water was going to be shallow. Either the weeds were going to be high or the water itself was going to be shallow. And we fished both. We fished, you know, over the high weeds into the really shallow water, the point where we were, we were probably drifting over a foot or two feet of water. Wow. Um, just fishing shrimp patterns. They were, they were on trip. They were eating shrimp and that's all we had to do. Um, I guess there was a winter kill in Tonkwa, so there's a bunch of fish in there that were probably stocked this spring as catchable size that have gotten into that 28 to 30 centimeter, 32 centimeter range. And you hook those fish, they can't go down, so they just come up. And they come right out of the water and they come right at you. And we had a wind blowing at our back and cold hands and arthritis and all of that. So <laughs> contending with those small fish that were just jumping and running right at the boat um, was a little more than than I bargained for. And uh, just about all of those little guys got off. We did get some solid, you know, 50, 52 centimeter fish, which were, you know, Tunkwa appropriate Panask, which we all love. Um, they were there, but they weren't the biggest part of the catch. But, you know, yeah, you got to, that's the other thing about that is you got to, you can't just hook them, you got to net them. And we didn't net them. So, yeah, that's the thing. If for the listeners out there that aren't familiar, uh, Lawrence referring to the Panask strain rainbow, which is your, your Kamloops strain. It, it originates from Panask Lake in the interior of British Columbia. And these fish are pure insectivores, um, and they are acrobatic. When you hook one, it's uh, they're all over the place, jumping everywhere. And as Lauren alluded to, they can be hard to hold on to. So, Lauren, you obviously, with all this competitive stuff and where you live, you got really interested in, in fly fishing lakes. What interested you about it? I think, Phil, for me, it was the challenge. Um, to me, when I first started fishing lakes, it was because um, I had to learn how to food, do it to compete. My history of fishing lakes goes back to my father, but we would troll flies. So I had, you know, some knowledge about, 
yeah, there's trout and lakes and they will eat flies. And if you row around or motor around long enough, you're going to get one. But that does not apply to competition fishing. And Devin did a really good job at your last podcast um, explaining about the rules and the regulations and a setup of a drifting boat. So we don't really have to probably go into that unless you want to. But I learned that, okay, there's a whole lot of this I don't know. And reading lakes was very, very difficult when I had to set up a drift. So I had to decide where I'm going to start my drift and end my drift and have a reason why. Because of the way my brain works, I'm I'm the kind of guy that I have to have an answer for what I'm doing. I can't just do something. So I got to know why I'm doing it. And I've got to think through that whole thing. For me, that means I've got to go out and I've got to do it and do it and do it and do it until I can tell myself, this is why I'm doing this. Whether it works or not, I just want to know that I'm, I've got a rationale behind me. So it just took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on many different conditions in a boat by myself on a lake where I wasn't boring other people um, just to figure out what this line does at that wind speed, you know, this retrieve, what three flies do versus one fly and, you know, all the different retrieves and what I was trying to accomplish and watching my flies on a fish finder and the real boring, just, you know, mind numbing aspect of learning how to fish a lake. It really, really captivated me. And it's probably a hard sell to make to a lot of people, but that's just the kind of angler I am. I like to dissect and really, really understand what I'm doing and why I'm making a decision. So lakes for me was starting fly fishing all over again. Yeah. Sounds very similar to what I go through sometimes. Everything happens for a reason and I want to know what the reason is. And, um, you know, it sounds like you're like me, you want to prepare to put the time in to figure it out or as close as you can to figure it all out. So you're based in Eastern United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this is the sort of the crux of this podcast is I get a lot of requests or a lot of questions about wanting to learn more about how to fly fish lakes in the east because they're a little different than the productive lakes in the west so maybe we could set the stage um because there is good still water fishing in the east isn't there oh there's very good still water fishing in the east it's just very different than the west so what makes it different maybe you can walk us through um all that stuff i think from my perspective there's two let's group them roughly into two big features number one is our fish don't tend to hold over in a lot of our eastern lakes like they do in the west. So the fish size is generally smaller. They're stocked at a catchable size in most lakes, far fewer numbers. And they usually, you know, we have a pretty big significant die-off that don't overwinter. Mm-hmm. There are some lakes where overwintering, you know, can happen and they do pretty well. But our stocking numbers overall are lower because they're stocked at a bigger size. So fewer fish. The second part is I can't think of all but, I don't know, maybe one lake that I've fished east of the Mississippi that only has trout in it. Every lake that I fish has multi-species, warm water, cool water, cold water. So that really impacts your fishing because it's nice when I'm out west or I'm up in BC and I know if I get a take, it's trout. I don't always know that in the east. So the learning curve is a lot slower for me because I've got to avoid panfish and avoid bass and avoid pickerel, avoid things that catch those if I'm targeting trout. If I just want to go out and catch a lot of fish, then it's fantastic fishing. It's not a problem. But if I want to target trout, then I've got to understand how all of those other fish play into their role. And they do. I I really have a strong feeling that, you know, trout in mixed lakes behave different than trout in non-mixed lakes, even if they're the same species of trout and the same limnology and all those other factors being the same because there's other species in the lake, they behave different. So I have to fish for them different. That's been my experience too. When I fished out in Eastern Canada is 
for me, the, you know, the shallow areas of the lake tended to be dominated by the bass and the panfish and those kind of things. Your trout tended to be on the, perhaps on the edges of the drop-offs and definitely out into deeper water and just suspending out there. Absolutely. Especially in the, in the peak period that we would fish. Now there's times in the winter and early spring and very late fall when those other fish become more dormant, that the trout will move in and become accessible. But I think what happens is I think when our fish are stocked, if you watch our fish get stocked in the east, they're almost always stocked by shore. And it's like a dinner bell ringing off for the bass and the pickerel and the pike. So the the predatory fish, those stock fish will stay potted up really, really tight. And those predatory fish will just come in and gather around them and go berserk on them. So the survivors learn pretty quickly to get out of that area and stay out of that area. So a lot of our east coast, especially rainbow trout, become pelagic really fast. Yeah, meaning they're out in deep water for those aren't they're out. Yeah, out in deep water, roaming over deep water. They don't relate to the margins really well. Um, they're very happy being out over over deep water and staying out there and following what's what the available food is in that area. So a lot of the techniques for margin fishing in the east aren't always as effective as they would be out west. That's interesting. That's interesting. So you mentioned food sources. What are sort of the key food sources you see in the lakes you fish out in the east? Predominantly in our eastern lakes, um, it's going to be terrestrials um, haphazardly in the surface film, uh, chironomids out over deep water, bloodworms over deep water, and Daphne and other zooplankton. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of lakes that have um, invasive edelweiss. Some people call them saw bellies. It's a small bait fish herring. Uh, If the reservoir, the impoundment has those, those are going to be a predominant forage fish, especially if there's brown trout. Um, I avoid those because for competition, I don't really ever see, you know, that kind of bait aspect. And it gets very hard to duplicate that and practice on that in a lot of our reservoirs because those fish are can be pretty deep and the, the trout relate to them. So I don't want to plumb down 40, 50 feet um, with a streamer pattern to an imitated bait fish because it's not really realistic and I don't even find it fun. So I don't <laughs> do that. I've done it a little bit late for lake trout and it's more about, you know, proving that you can get a fly down to 56, right. 70 feet than, uh, you know, something you'd want to, you know, do time and time again, necessarily. So that's interesting, because that's very similar to, to my observations. And I've done some schools in eastern Canada and quickly figured out, you know, tried working the shallows and had a great time hooking small bass and panfish, but never saw a trout. And it wasn't until I got out into the deeper water. And I think coming from the west, most people associate, you know, 80, 90 feet of water is just devoid. But it's quite the opposite. I found there's lots of trout out there and that anywhere from 10 to 20 feet down that are more than catchable. Absolutely. Even, even on the surface over the deepest part of the lake. I mean, if there's, if there's insect life, terrestrials, midges, anything, the wind will move that food around. Those fish are looking for it. And I think it's species dependent too. Um, I think if you're fishing rainbows or they're going to be way more surface oriented, they're going to be looking up um, very strongly. Um, If you have a brown trout lake, They'll be a little more stratified, a little more relating to maybe the thermocline, maybe a plankton bloom, maybe some kind of structure or perceived structure, um, wave action, things like that. Rainbows just kind of, for me, seem to just kind of roam. And they roam and they look for food and they eat food. Yeah, It's just identifying where they're roaming and what depth they're roaming at and what they'll eat. That's the tricky part. That's interesting because I, I think that's critical. I'm glad you raised that so people can understand. I think they probably approach those lakes and, you know, fly fishing is, you know, the, the shallows is obviously probably a little less difficult. 
Um, but uh, realizing that to spend that time out in the deep water, and that's where those lock styles, I found, uh, techniques really came in because you just it was impractical to anchor in 80, 90 feet or anything like that. Um, so the lock style techniques really came into play so you could allow you to cover water. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing is covering the water. Um, even when it's flat, common, there's no wind, your boat's going to move. You're not going to sit in one spot. It's going to take a long time to move, <laughs> but you'll move. Um, and the fish are moving. So when there's no wind, the fish don't relate to the wind. So they're going to be more random in, in how they're moving. But they're, I think there's some anglers that think that trout in a lake just kind of sit in one spot and hang out. And they don't do that. They're going to roam, um, especially rainbows. Our eastern trout, newly stocked trout, will pod. And they will kind of associate with a pod. But as the season moves on, those pods kind of break up. And you'll get, you know, small groups of fish that roam or individuals that roam. So I find a lot of guys want to focus on an area they caught fish and stay there thinking there's a, you know, a quote unquote pot of fish and you got to stay on them. And newly stocked fish, I would say, yes, absolutely. That's going to be the case. But as the season goes on, if your water temperatures are amiable to, to fishing those top parts of the water column, it doesn't take very long for those pelagic fish to disperse and break off and just kind of get their own, own way of being. So covering water becomes so important. Yeah. And the minute you put an anchor, you take that away and um, something to consider. I'm not, I'm not knocking anchor fishing. I'm just, you know, the, the, the ability to cover water, especially in the East is really important. You mentioned something interesting there, and maybe you can expand on it a bit for the listeners is um, particularly with brown trout and relating to wind. What do you mean by that? So when you have a wind action on a lake, it creates, you know, almost, like a current on a, on a, on moving water and the trout will tend to orient upwind, up current, like they would in a, in a river. So if you have a wind blowing at your back, the majority of the fish are going to be, you know, pointing their nose at you or across wind to some degree and swimming through that wave, looking for food. Cause if you think of a flat, calm lake um, picture, you know, a lake that's frozen and anything you throw on the surface is going to stay on the surface. The minute the wind kicks up, you break that surface tension. Anything that's on the surface is now going to sink. Mm-hmm. And it becomes more available to the fish at a greater depth. So flat, calm conditions we don't like because you don't cover water. Flat, calm, and sunny. Um, a lot of that sun is reflected off of the flat, calm. It acts like a mirror. So it doesn't quite disturb the fish as much as we think it does. It's difficult to fish because it's flat, calm, and you're not moving. But the fish kind of tend to come more towards the surface because that's where the food's trapped. You kick a wind up, that food sinks and the light scatters. And I think that scattered light through the waves makes fish uncomfortable and they'll send them a little bit deeper, but they're still going to kind of orient to the current from the wind. So as you're in your boat, you've got to start thinking about all of these facets and what's happening in front of you. And it changes and stop. The wind stops, the wind starts, the wind stops, or your drift changes to a calm spot. Those are all factors you want to consider as you're casting and what line and what retrieve and where the fish might be, because all of that matters to them below the surface as far as what their food supply is doing and where it's at. That's interesting. That's great uh, information for any still water. Um, I always find though, whenever I put the drogue out, that usually makes it go calm. <laughs> my yep. my yep. drogue has this unique ability to stop wind. right? Yep. Or reverse it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it drives you crazy. So let's talk <laughs> about uh, gear a little bit. What are your preferred rods, your line preferences, reel? And, and we'll get into leader setups and some of your fly choices or styles you like. For, for those eastern lakes and just sort of walk through all of that. So let's start with fly rods. 
for fly rods, I only fish 10 foot rods. Um, I know Devin talked quite a bit in his podcast about the hang and that change in, you know, in the aspect of the flies that comes off the, off the turn and starts coming up and fishing the hang and stopping the flies and fishing the hang and stopping the flies. The 10 foot rod just allows you to do that a lot better and a lot further from the boat than a nine foot rod, much like nymph fishing in a river. Mm-hmm. It gives you more reach. Um, it also keeps your flies more above you when you're sitting in a boat and casting and more above your boat partner. So I, I only use 10 foot rods. I'm not saying nothing else will work, but that's my preference is a 10 foot, uh, four piece rod. Um, I have a very fast, crisp casting stroke. So I like a pretty fast rod and a pretty good recovery to it. So any blank that will match that stroke, um, I appreciate. I prefer six weights. That's my overall pick as a six weight. I do use seven weights for big fish or for heavy winds, just to power through the wind or just to be able to put the bricks on a fish. But for the most part, I'm fishing six weights. If I know the fish are going to be on that smaller size, I'll drop down to a five weight just to give a little more tip protection, especially on the hang and the hook set and the close in work. So I'm not bouncing those small fish. And that's in competition too. Recreationally, I wouldn't really mind if I was dropping those small fish. Mm-hmm. So the meat of my the meat of my arsenal six weights. Um, for reels, I like anything that I can change cassettes because I carry so many lake lines and so many different lines. I don't want to change the whole reel. So any of the quality reels that have cassette features to them, where you can just pop the cassette out, put another cassette in, and get back to fishing, is what I would recommend for somebody who wants to fish lakes. As far as lines go, boy, that's, Here we go. <laughs> that's a can of worms that I don't know anybody wants to open. Um, you don't want to know how many lines I have and how many I fish regularly and how many I fish in the course yeah, of a actually day. Actually, I it, do. <laughs> it, can, it, can be, it can be pretty absurd. Yeah. I am that guy. I am that guy that I change probably, I don't know, 10 times more frequently than anybody else I fish with. So. If I'm not sticking fish, I'm changing something about every third or fifth cast. Okay, somewhere in that range. If I know, I'm if I know where the fish are at. If I have a good idea, okay, the fish are here. I'm not catching them. I'm changing either my line, my retriever, my fly every third to fifth cast. Okay. So first of all, full confession here: How many fly lines do you have with you on any given day? Mm, Fifteen or better. You and I are soulmates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people look in my gear bag and go. Holy, what the heck is that in there? Is it those are only the paranoid survive, right? <laughs> yeah, it depends if I'm home or if I'm traveling is yeah. a big part of it. So if I'm at home, it's it's upwards of 20. Yeah. If I'm traveling, it's more towards 15. Yeah. Yeah, you got to make those decisions because mostly because of airline baggage right? Yep. yep. <laughs> so have, do you have favorite lines? Um, you know, ones you tend to use more often than others? Oh. So if it was a perfect world, I would fish nothing but a floating line or a midge tip my whole life. And I would fish nothing but nymph or coronamid patterns with a hand twist retrieve. If that's all I could do, I would be, I would be so happy. (laughs) Unfortunately, other factors dictate the possibility of that. So my favorite line, absolutely a floating line. And the more old and the more beat up and the more cracked it is, the more I like it. So it's really hard for me to, to take a floating line I've had on for five years off because it just starts to get fishing good. It just doesn't cast good. So well, old catcher's mid all worn in, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, it just, it bites the water, right? It sinks a little bit, but not too much. I can see it, but the, there comes a point where it's fishing really good. It just doesn't cast 
really good and it's got to get retired and i hate when that happens so <laughs> <laughs> i have i have i always have two floating lines i have one for chronomid or midging or dry flies and i have one for if i'm fishing dry dropper or indicator fishing um because i rig the leaders up a little bit different so i don't want to keep you know adjusting that part of it so i have two dry lines on me all the time yeah I have three actually. <laughs> I have one, you know, I have one that's dedicated for a dry fly line, more of a presentation line, a longer taper. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to spook fish. Then I've got a, a line for indicator fishing and a very similar line for fishing long leaders. So I can just pick one up and put one down or rig one up. So they're all unique to that. So, uh, yeah. you know, you and I are soulmates on that. That's good. What about your sinking lines? What lines do you use most often there? Oh boy. See, that's, I can't answer that because that depends on all the factors wrapped into one. So it's, it's how deep are the fish? How windy is it? What's the retrieve? So those three factors are always going to dictate my line choice and it can change every 15 minutes, you know, depending on the body of water you're at. So if I've got to get down 10 feet and the wind is blowing so fast and my boat's drifting fast, I got to get down 10 feet fast. That's a type seven. Yeah. But if the, it's a gentle wind and I have a long time to get down 10 feet, then it's a type three. You know, and if it's a fast retrieve and I've got to get down 10 feet and stay there, it's a type seven. Yeah. If it's a slow retrieve and I get it down 10 feet, you know, type three. So you got to think about all those things as you're fishing. There's no just one condition where it's a type seven line. It's how fast is the wind blowing? That's how fast your boat's going at your flies. Because you're not going away from your flies, you're going to your flies. So um, the faster your boat's drifting, the less time you have to count down to get your flies to depth. So the heavier line you have to use to get to deep fish. And then if you're using a fast retrieve, you need a heavy, heavy enough line that'll stay down for that retrieve. If it's too light, the retrieve is going to lift everything up and you're going to get out of the fish. Um, now, again, species, you have to factor that in. So for me, brook trout, brown trout, you've, I want to be more with the fish. I want to be more down around them. Rainbows, I want to be above them as much as I can. So I think rainbows are more, more visually um, feeding up and more looking up and the clearer the water is the farther they will go that's my impression of rainbows yeah um especially naturalized rainbows or holdover rainbows or overwinter rainbows depending on what part of the world you're from newly stocked rainbows uh, I, I don't give that any credence i just want to be around the fish and rip something ugly through them and they'll eat it but <laughs> yeah they're pretty uh cooperative yeah yeah youthful stage. um so I'm really careful if it's a rainbow lake to, to try to stay above the fish and the, the clearer the water is, the further above them I'm comfortable staying. Brown trout, I feel like I want to be more at their zone. They will be oftentimes more surface oriented than rainbows. They will they will feed off the surface. Sometimes more than rainbows will. But if they're down 10 feet, I don't want to be down three. I don't think they want to come up as much as rainbows do. That's my impression. Somebody else may feel differently about them. Brook trout are like lake trout. They're char. Yep. Um, I want to be bumping them in the head. I don't want to make them do too much to eat. I just want that fly right in their face as long as I can. So I got to factor that in. I don't fish to a lot of tiger trout. I have next to no still water cutthroat um, experience. So Devon would probably be a better, or Lance would probably be a better barometer for those fish. But rookies, brownies, and and lake trout and rainbows, I've got a, a good amount of experience in the east on those. Yeah. So do you uh, use sweep lines at all? I do. Um, for me, the sweep line is more of a fishing down line um, than a fishing a water depth line. Mm-hmm. I know other people fish it differently, but for me, fishing a sweep line, I don't feel like I can fish a sweep line left of uh, a buoyant fly on the point. 
to to accentuate that parabola. So if I'm fishing down a drop off or I'm work, working the water column down, um, I want to have a booby or something somewhat buoyant on the point to really exaggerate that U shape. Because a, a sweep line is like an old school sinking line yeah. where the tip wasn't density compensated. So the tip didn't sink as fast as the belly did. Yeah. Then they compensated for that. And then, you know, the belly and the sink, the tip sank about the same. And now there's different, you know, you get the 40 pluses where the belly and the tip are way different. So you got to factor all that in. But I do fish sweeps, but I fished them in a much narrow, much more narrow category than a lot of guys that that I know fish them. I don't feel comfortable searching with a sweep. I, if I feel like the fish want to fly on a drop or they're on a drop off, like they want the presentation going down and pausing and going down and pausing or, or fishing down a drop off, I like a sweep. Yeah. Um, I don't fish it too much out over open water unless I get that sensation sensation where that fly dropping through the water column is important. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so with all these, I'm sure the listeners are, um, you're out in the boat, especially in a competition, you've got to stay in a seated position. You're still only one rod rigged at any one time, correct? Correct. What's your secret for changing lines quickly and efficiently? Can you walk us through that process? Go to BC and only fish one fly. So then it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I just cut it off, reel it all in, and put a new cassette in and strip it all back out. Yeah. So if I'm fishing multiple flies and I change lines and I want to keep the same fly on, then all my lines are rigged with a short 10-centimeter section of 15-pound maximum with a with a perfection loop at the end. Some guys use braided connectors. Some guys use other, you know, tippet rings. I've stuck to that 10 centimeter intersection of uh, stiff nylon with a perfection loop. And that's what I tie my leader directly to. So if I'm fishing a tandem fly rig and I want to keep the same team of flies on and just change my line, then I reel that knot in about halfway down my rod clamp my hemostats to the end of the leader, cut it off, put the new line on, strip it back up, tie it back on and pull it back out. Yeah, that's very similar to what I do because the real challenge is threading the rod. Uh, right, uh, right. You know, even so. if you were going to perhaps go to a totally different leader setup, you've got the rod threaded. Changing the leader once the rod's threaded is pretty a lot more straightforward than you know, I'm sure your boat partner in a competition is not going to want you to, here, hold my rod for a second while I thread this through or allow you to stand up or anything like that. So that's a real cool tip, Lauren. And I, I don't think even recreational anglers just, I think sometimes they won't make the change because it's too much hassle. So they miss out on that, as you talked about, that change where if nothing's happening in three or four casts that you got to change something. And if you decide to change the fly line, if you're hesitant or reluctant to do it, you won't do it and you're going to miss out. You are going to miss out. And I think I notice a lot of guys, you know, if they have success early with a certain line and a certain retrieve, it's hard for them to get off of it, but they don't recognize the conditions have changed yeah. or they've stayed on the same fish and put the fish down deeper and they're just not reaching them. So if you stop catching fish, something's changed. Either you've got to relocate or you've got to change your line or change your retrieve or change your flies. Um, I'm a, a big proponent of, you know, changing something quickly. If you're not, if you know you're overfishing, and fishing the fish and you're not catching them, you've got to change something. You can't pound a square pig into a round hole. Do you have a bit of a formula for that? Or is it just very condition dependent, um, you know, flop? You know, it's, for me, it's based a lot on past experience. I've, you know, by this point, I've had the pleasure and the honor of fishing so many different bodies of water throughout the world and exposing myself to different species of fish and different ages of stocking at different ages of holdover. I've got a bank of experience that I go off of, 
So my formula is my best guess when I look at the water and look at the conditions when I get to the boat ramp. I just kind of look at spider webs and I look at the water and I, you know, whatever information I have available, I make my best guess to start things off. Then as I'm fishing, I'm thinking about what my next step is going to be while I'm fishing. Um, you still have to pay attention to your countdown and your retrieve and when you got to take and what was all that was happening. But I've been able to compartmentalize what I'm doing versus what my next step is going to be. So it's kind of like a chess match for me. And I think that's what I like about lake fishing is my mind is so actively involved in every aspect of it that I'm thinking, okay, if this does not work, what's my next step going to be? And then I've got to answer. I force myself to answer why it can't just be a, you know, crapshoot. So I need to tell myself why you're going to go to that. That's the conversation I have with myself. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I think a lot of, of river and stream anglers that that's their favorite place to go, go to a lake and they say it's boring and it's not as dynamic and maybe, maybe it's not as physically dynamic as walking and waiting and casting and, and but it's mentally dynamic because there's so much thinking going on as to why things work and why they don't work or why they could work better. Right. Yeah. And that's why it's nice to have a teammate that, you know, or a person in your boat that you can converse with that you, you have, you know, even if they're not as experienced as you, they have something to offer. Yeah. Maybe they're a local to the water and you're not. Maybe they're, um, they fish those conditions and you haven't. Whatever it is, if you can converse and have an open dialogue in the boat, it's going to give you, you know, some clue to what that next step is. Case in point, when we were practicing um, one day, we had Brian Chan. We were honored to have Brian Chan as our guide. And he took us to Steak Lake. And his thought was these fish were midging. So I went to a chronomid. I was fishing chronomids on a floating line. It wasn't working for me. He took us to a, a part of the lake that I, you know, I could, I could, I could tell it was, you know, four, six, eight feet muddy bottom. It was a cold day. It just screamed bloodworms to me, and he kind of winked at me when I mentioned bloodworms. So he affirmed my next step for me. I was thinking bloodworms. He kind of gave me the the wink, like the look, like yeah, I would do that too. Yeah. So I put a bloodworm pattern on and a floating line, fish it static, and I got four or five fish pretty quick. So that was my next step. I had a somebody in the boat that affirmed that for me and made that confident. And if you don't have confidence in something, it's probably not something you want to do. At least, you know, when you're trying to catch fish. It's a good thing to do when you're out practicing or just, you know, trying to, you know, get yourself more well-rounded to practice some of the things you've heard about. But when you're in a boat with somebody, you can talk back and forth to get that that kind of extra vote of confidence to me is really, really helpful. So in that particular situation, it it just, you know, affirmed that that was going to be my next step and it really worked out. It didn't last very long, but when it worked, it worked well. Yeah. Um, and then Pete was in our boat too, and Pete put a similar pattern on, fished it differently, but the fish responded to it and then it shut down. Yeah. And it lasted about 30 minutes, 35 minutes, and then it completely shut down and another program kicked in. Squala Fly Fishing puts as much time, thought, and effort into designing fishing apparel as you put into finding fish. Founded in Bozeman, Montana by a group of fly anglers who wanted better gear, Squala builds functional, comfortable, and dependable fly fishing apparel. I've been loving the thermal 150 hoodie I've been wearing from Squala, and to be honest, I haven't been able to take this thing off. It's uh, super soft. It's perfect in the uh, whether you got hot weather, cold days. This thing is an all-around great piece of gear. Combining advanced materials with fishing-focused, purpose-built design, Squala waders, jackets, shirts, pants, and insulation are made for us. 
To help Wetfly swing listeners, that's you. Squala is offering a 10% discount on your next order. Just use Wetfly Swing 10 at checkout right now to get 10% off your next order. That's Squala, S K W A L A. Gear for us, the like minded few serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. So let's talk about leaders a little bit. Um, talk to me through your leader setups. I am going to bore you tremendously. Here Good. Because I'm. <laughs> I don't know if you've talked or know John Horsey. Yep. I am staunchly in his category where I just strip off um, 3X, straight 3X or straight 2X. In BC, I use 2X pretty much consistently. Um, there's not too many times I go smaller than that because of those fish. Um, in the East Coast, I'm 3X predominantly, occasionally 4X if I know the fish are going to be small. But I'm just straight about 18 feet of straight 3X and my flies are five feet apart. So if I'm fishing three flies from my point to my middle flies, five feet from my middle fly to my top flies, five feet. If I'm fishing dry flies, it's exactly the same way. Um, if I fish two flies, then my space between the two is going to be bigger. I'll go to about eight feet between the two. Okay. And why is that? It's just the way I've always fished. Um, I like to, in my head, I like to know that my leader, my tip of diameter is consistent. So it's penetrating the water at the same rate um, throughout the whole leader. I've under I am able to cast that and turn that over. Um, I don't have a the turnover problems that a lot of folks do just because I've developed my whole lake fishing with a a straight tippet leader. I don't ever I've never fished a taper leader. I've tried it and I didn't like the I didn't like the way it casted and I didn't like the way it fished subsurface. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's that's a pretty simple system too, really. Yeah, it's yeah. It's very simple. And if I change lines and change teams, I don't have to change my leader because it doesn't change at all. I just clip my flies up and put new flies on. The only thing that I do different is if I do fish dry dropper or indicator fish, um, I'll have a, a about a four foot section of one X or two X to my dry fly or my indicator. Yeah. And then the straight three X after that. Yeah. Just for a little backbone in it a little. Yeah. Cause those indicator flies are a little harder to punch over. Um, and I, I put them pretty close. I, I think I was wrong when I said four feet, it's probably more like two feet. I keep them pretty close to my dry fly, my dry line, just to get the turnover. And they're hanging differently, right? They're more vertical as they're sitting there. So they're not being pulled. Yeah. And I, and I fish them like a redfish fly. If you watch guys fish redfish down in Louisiana and they put that big cork on and they pop it yep. to draw the attention of the fish. I, I do that a lot with my, my dry fly. So I fish dry flies unless I'm imitating something. Um, if I'm fishing purely dry dropper, I am chugging that dry fly a lot, especially if it's calm, just to try to attract the tension of the fish over to my to that area of the water column. Yeah. Um, once in a while, they take the dry fly, but usually I feel like when it's calm out, they're they're coming to that noise, and then my my nymphs are hanging below that, which hopefully they eat. That works really well for me. If it's windy, the the wind action itself provides enough action to my nymphs. Uh, the chugging doesn't really cause enough of a disturbance. Um, to make it worthwhile, but I do, I do fish dry dropper or indicator, whatever term you want to use, probably a lot more actively than a lot of people do. I will apply a lot more pressure to dry fly and move it, pop it, chug it to draw that attention, but also to lift and drop the nymphs underneath. I like those nymphs to come up and go down and come up and go down. So if the wind doesn't do it, I do it myself. Yeah. No, I think that's important with indicators because you can literally, as you said, call fish over. You'll you'll make that strip. Those flies have risen and fallen within a few seconds or not even that, boom, it, mm -hmm. after she goes. So yep. um, that certainly worked. Um, I'm assuming you're fishing off dropper tags. 
Yes. Yeah, I had to ask yes. most, because it's funny. Most other, you know, river and stream friends are all tie off the bend of the hook. And that's, I, I, I don't like that method at all, <laughs> to be honest, that sort of tandem method. I'm, I'm a dropper person like yourself off tags. Yeah. You just get more, you get much more positive hooks apps. Cause one thing Devin taught me years ago when he was, when he was in school, he explained to me that trout don't inhale like bass do. They, they physically eat. So when they go to take a fly, if it's tied rigidly to the tippet, they're just going to move that fly away from the mouth as they try to eat it. Yep. So you'll get a take, but a false hookup. The tag leaves that fly independent from the rest of the leader so they can get a much more positive take on it. You get a much more positive hook set. Plus you can change flies um, a lot easier that way. I can change one fly without affecting my whole leader. Well, yeah, and I also worry too, when you tie uh, one fly onto the back end of another fly on the bend, that you negatively impact the fly that you're tying on the bend to because it's, Absolutely. To me, it's like a truck and a trailer. Your truck is far more maneuverable without a trailer. But when you put the trailer on now that, you know, your vehicle behaves differently. So I just don't think it, it moves as, as well. And, and like you say, when you got to change one, you pretty well have to disassemble everything. So, right. Some people tie off the, you know, most people tend to tie off the bend of the hook. Some people tie off the eye of yeah. the hook, which is a little bit better, but you still have that rigidity. Yeah. Um, sometimes when I'm just really in practice mode, if I'm fishing dry dropper, I'll, I'll tie a, a clinch knot above around the leader above the dry fly and let it slide down. The dry fly will stop it like a right angle leader. Yep. Um, just because it's faster. But in competition, that's not legal. So I usually everything's off a tag. Okay. So uh Eastern Lakes fly choices. What are some of the do you see any differences or similarities between what you've seen in the West, for example? Um, no, no. <laughs> All the flies that work in the West work in the east. It's the water, the water type and the, the fish behavior, the two big differences. Yeah. So all the trash flies that work in the West, work in these blobs, worms, mops, all of that stuff will work. I think a lot of guys don't fish enough chronomid patterns, static or near static in the East. I think a lot of guys tend to put on a bugger type pattern and strip, which can work. There's no doubt that can work. Um, but I think our, our, more residential fish, fish that have been stocked for, you know, several months or overwintered fish are going to appreciate, appreciate a much slower retrieve. Yeah. Um, 90% of the time there's, unless they're on bait fish and there, there's a big alley wife or spot tail shiner or smelt population. Um, if they're insectivorous on um, that slower retrieve or near static retrieve is going to be much more successful. It's just really hard to do confidently until you've done it and gain confidence in it. You've got to get the belief that that's actually going to work, but it's addictive once it does, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. Yeah, yeah. that, that I, I, you know, for my river and street, I said it's similar to a, a wet fly swing when they do take it. That some, You know, sometimes it's just a an imperce, almost imperceivable take. Other times it's that sort of little aggressive little pluck or it's just there. It's just something about it. Once you experience it, you can't get enough of it. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's the best. Yeah. Like I said, if I if that's the only way I could ever fish, I would be very happy to do it. But yeah, unfortunately, the thing about lakes is wind dictates that when you're from, from a drifting boat. Now, if you're bank fishing, you know, and you can get access to trout from the bank, then that's going to work all the time because the wind will cover the water for you. Yeah. Do you bank fish much out east? Not a lot, because not all the lakes are 
conducive to it. You know, yeah. the trout are either not accessible from the bank or the bank is not accessible to cast. Yeah. There's a mix of both. Yeah. You know, there's some lakes where you can wait out far enough where you can cast and access the fish, but they're pretty rare. And you're kind of limited, you know, to where you can do that. And there's, you know, I can't think of too many lakes where you can just go out and fish around the whole lake. You can do that in a lot of lakes out west. You can, you know, get out and they have pretty broad margins and big littoral zones and the overhang behind you is a lot of times a sagebrush and things like that where you you can cast and access the bank and the fish are there and you don't have to deal with bass and panfish and golden shiners and all of that other stuff. In the east, you don't really have that too frequently where you're you're just catching fish you don't want to catch. <laughs> now, if you want to catch those fish, then you're going to have a ball yeah. fishing. All the same techniques, you know, everything will work for all of those fish. Yeah, it's amazing how fast <laughs> little flies. <laughs> oh, bass loves blobs. Oh, they yeah, yeah. Little, yeah, they yeah. love squirms or any kind of worm pattern. Anything um, in the bugger spectrum, anything marabou and, you know, soft like that. Bass love, pickle love. Yeah. I remember fishing in eastern Canada on the dock waiting for the bows to get ready, and I just couldn't help. You see fish, you can't help yourself, right? And right. and you drop something down. It was like watching piranhas come in. They just lined up from all 360 different directions and just started going at the fly. It was fun. <laughs> and it's a, you know, and it's it's a good way to to scratch the itch on lake fishing because you know you can do all of the same things exactly the same way and get positive response which is not from trout but you're not doing anything wrong and a lot of times those fish are even harder to detect than a trout is you know a bluegill is a great target species to learn about you know light bites and perch too yeah um they'll eat all the same flies you can fish them at depth you can fish them shallow you can fish them over the margins over open water you can find bluegills you know in a lot of places you wouldn't expect bluegills to be Perch are much more bottom oriented, so they're a good training species for char, for like lake trout and, and brook trout. If you have a perch lake, um, put your lake trout and brook trout flies on just a little bit smaller, but fish the same way because the, the takes are all you know quite a bit similar. Yeah, and you can sometimes have to plumb down thirty or forty feet to get them. That's interesting. That's a really great tip, Lauren. You know, to use those other fish as a training tool for for the you know the target species. That's a great tip. There was one lake in the, that I, one of the finger lakes in New York called Skinny Atlas Lake. It's the only finger lake that I'm aware of that doesn't have uh, smelt or alewives in it. So it's basically uh, sculpins and then insects. There's some spot tail shiners, but they're not significant, but it's got lake trout and it's got rainbow. It's got landlocked salmon, but it's also got all the other species too. So um, I would go out there and, and practice the deep water retrieve. And I had my fish finder on and I would, I would work, you know, 30, 40 feet of water and I could see my flies coming up off the bottom on my fish finder and watch the fish come up off the bottom following the flies and learn what the takes were like and how to trigger those fish that were following the flies up off the bottom because I could see the the video game. Mm -hmm. And that was a great learning tool for me because the strike detection that I learned on those fish, I don't think anybody could have explained it to me. And what I have to do with my rod and how I hold my rod and how I retrieve the flies just to detect the take. And it's caught me a lot of lake trout and brook trout. And it's caught me, you know, rainbows and brown trout too, if that kind of, you know, presentation matters, which once in a while it does. But um, I credit the perch for that because they taught me that. <laughs> That's cool. So you mentioned you use electronics when you can? Um, 
I do and I don't. So I don't depend on them. I like to not use them, but there's times when I'm training and I'm trying to figure something out where I will put them on. And a lot of it's so I can watch my flies. Um, the fish finder I have, I have it dialed in so I can see my flies as they come up under the boat. If they're in the beam, I can see them. Yeah. Um, and I can watch the reaction of the fish. Um, I can also know how deep they are. I kind of predict how deep they are. Then I look and get verification or, you know, be get told I'm wrong. <laughs> as far as what my depth is. So I, it dials my sinking lines in, you know, I'll fish a type seven. I I'm, I feel like I'm should be fishing 30 feet and I'll look down and see where my flies are at. And they're, you know, at 40 feet or, you know, they're at 20 feet. And then I just kind of work through that until I get the verification that where I think my flies are, they are. So I do it in that aspect. I do it. Sometimes if I'm struggling, I'll put it on to see if I see a Daphnia bed, you know, the, Daphne are the, are the nemesis of every trout lake angler anywhere in the world. Um, if rainbows are on Daphne, they're on Daphne, and there's not a lot you can do about it other than try to figure out how to catch them. So knowing where they're at is important, knowing how they react to the sunlight because they're photosensitive. So the sunnier it is and the windier it is, the deeper they go. Yeah. Um, the cloudier it is and the you know the, the grayer it is, then the more toward the surface they'll be. But if Logic rainbows are on Daphne, they're on Daphne, and there's not a lot you can do about it unless there's something meteor that down there that interests them. Yeah. Unfortunately for me, that's a lot of my time is fishing Daphne eaters. So well, we run into I was yeah um yesterday there were any fish we took throat samples on were just stuffed from one end to the other with uh Daphne and uh blobs were the way we managed to get them and not in a color that matched them, right? It just sort of shook them out of that slumber but it proved to be very effective because they're a pretty curious fish as well at times yeah they'll eat they just got to kind of know where they're eating and definitely it's really important to to know where they're eating now there's i i do think certain lakes certain colors prevail other lakes other colors prevail and we're still playing with that and i don't think anybody has that dialed in but no it's scary how many blobs and that kind of flies you can you can kill a lot of <laughs> when you look at all the colors and the materials and and the combinations of those materials, you could you could have a thousand of them, and I don't think you'd touch the tip of the only the tip of the iceberg. I probably do have a thousand. Yeah. Of them too. that's the problem. Yeah, because it's it's a bit like <laughs> which one do I put on? Yeah, as soon as a new material comes out, you're like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, man, I have a lot of flies. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in the um, when you get to a new lake, how do you sort of break it down? You got any? In the east, if somebody's going to a lake out there, what would you be? So I think the first thing you have to figure out is what's in the lake. Um, if you're looking for a trout, are there anything else in there? And in the east, it's going to be, like I said, there's only one lake I've ever fished that had nothing but trout in it in the east. So what species? And that's going to give you a little bit of an insight as far as maybe how they're going to behave and what they're going to eat. Um, are you talking about brown trout, brook trout, rainbow trout, or a mix? Um, when were they stocked? What size were they stocked? So if you're going out right after stocking, they're going to still be pretty oriented to the shorelines. They're going to be in larger pods. They should be showing themselves like they would in a hatchery. Yeah. And if you find the fish, they shouldn't be too terribly difficult to catch. If you start pounding on the fish, they're going to get harder and go deeper and get more selective. So understanding that you're going to have to progress through different retrieves and different flies and go from more gaudy to more natural and faster to slower. That's a typical progression. doesn't always work out that way. Um, if you have a, a multi-species lake, it doesn't take them very long to get away from all those fish that are eating them. So 
getting outside of the weed beds out over deeper water, even out, you know, in the middle of the lake where you wouldn't expect them to be in March or April. Um, there's going to be fish out there and then covering water. Um, try not to overthink points and weed beds and all of the structure that you would focus on in the Western lakes that are more singular species lakes. I want to try to get away from the bass and the pickerel on the pike. So I want to get somewhere, you know, the fish feel safe and then try to identify what they might be eating in there. So a little bit of research of, you know, what could be the food sources be in the lakes. They're pretty consistent. You know, you're going to have leeches, you're going to have scuds, you're going to have chronomids and chronomids and chronomids. You're going to have daphnia, you're going to have terrestrials. So all of your normal, you know, crossover patterns are going to work. Um, I always try to look for showing fish and fish to showing fish. Um, and I try to fish, if I see fish, you know, dry dropper is probably my number one starting point because I can just keep the fly with the fish for a lot longer. But like I said, I'm not the guy that casts an indicator out there and lets it sit and doesn't move it. I fish it very actively, yeah. chugging and hand twisting and lift, you know, long pulls and letting them drop back down. Um, but it keeps the flies in a more contained area where I know the fish are at. I just really don't know where I'm going and I'm going to go to a sinking line and just start the basic countdown, a five second countdown in a couple different retrieves, then go to a 10 second countdown and repeat the retrieves, then go to a 20 second countdown and repeat the retrieves. If that doesn't work, then I'll start changing flies. If I get the feeling that the fish are just not feeding and they're not active and I feel like there's fish there, I'm seeing a bait guy next to me is catching fish or a troller is catching fish. So I know there's fish in front of me. They're not eating the natural stuff. Then I'm going to start throwing junk at them, throwing blobs and hanging worms and, you know, booby patterns. Bite and dirty. Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because then you're going after, then you're going after the, the reaction bite, not the feeding bite. Yeah. Do you also have uh, dragons and damsels in your lakes? Uh, we do, yeah, and we have boatmen too. Oh, yeah. that's good. So all of that stuff can be important. Yeah, you know, we have all the same bugs that the Western Lakes have. Um, Calabatus isn't quite as important, but it does exist. Yeah, um, the hatching insects aren't outside of chronomids aren't as important. What we do have is a you know a terrestrial game can be important. So beetles, ants, bees, wasps, those kinds of things. Snails, snails are a very underlooked food item in lakes so a lot of people don't imitate and don't fish i'm a big fan of snail patterns and especially on windy days when those snails come to the surface to relocate um, i think the fish are aware of that when that happens and i'm always you know pretty quick to put a snail pattern on in those kind of conditions if i think it warrants it i'm looking for them but you'll see them you'll see them out and about in the water and you'll feel them in bellies of fish if you catch them yeah they're like a maracan <laughs> <laughs> yep. what's your current favorite snail powder uh a brown glow bug with a black like a brown think a brown fab with glow bug yarn with black foam interesting yeah yeah because i was fishing a, in corbett i tie a fab that's i call a dragon fab because it's more meant to suggest juvenile dragon nymphs that are often have that vibrant lime green thorax so i put that on the front and a dark olive with um back end on it with a split uh you know your traditional fab split foam tail and black i wonder maybe they're taking that for a snail too so maybe yeah maybe. most of the snails that i you know i feed try to eating are pretty small yeah. so they're egg size or you know so it's a, it's basically a brown glow bug with a fab you know black flab tail on it i know out west on henry's 
lake, they uh, snails can be important. They fish renegades. Yeah. 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 Uh, small renegades can work as well. So uh, that's interesting. That's good. I'm glad somebody else likes snails too. <laughs> um, so we talked lock style. Um, I think we, we talked on that. You like to use those as well. Any other favorite tactics you like to use? You mentioned the dry dropper. Um, moving it actively. Is there anything else you like to tactics wise you like to, to use on your Eastern lakes? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, that I do a lot, I think it's because of where I live and the water type of fish is a, a almost a pure vertical retrieve. And this is something that I learned actually fishing out West with my friend Kurt Daniel, uh, <laughs> Finlayson on Daniel's Lake um, was a vertical retrieve where, you know, a heavy line, a, a type seven, a type eight, type nine, um, long casts and just let it get all the way down and then hand twist it or slower back up under the boat. It's hard to explain. It's one of those things you almost have to kind of watch somebody do. So if you, I know, I know one of the big techniques for anchored boats is uh, the dangle with a weighted line. Yes. Fishing chronomids. <laughs> yeah. So yes. <laughs> kind of like that, but with a retrieve. Yeah. Um, for some reason there are certain lakes and, the lake that I have by my house that I fish a lot is similar to Daniel's where that vertical retrieve is, it can be very important where that flies down at the bottom and coming very, very slowly up to the boat. Yeah. Not from way out up to the boat, but from under the boat, up to the boat. You can't do it on a windy day really well. You got to have the right conditions, but man, does it work. So you're casting out, you're over deep water, making a cast as long as you comfortably can and allowing that to sink maintaining contact with the flies as they descend until they're vertical yep. you're vertical and then bring yep. your retrieve back up interesting yeah i'm just gathering whatever whatever drift i have yeah. as i'm drifting at my flies i'm just gathering that in i'm not i'm trying not to move the fly as it drops down through the walk i'm just trying to gather whatever slack the boat is giving me as the fly descends until i feel like it's all the way down whatever that is whether it's 20 feet or 40 feet or whatever the length of my cast is you know um and then it's just a mind stakingly numbing, slow retrieve. <laughs> it can be a strip. It could be a hand twist. But what I do, Phil, is I, I extend my hand out and I balance my rod grip on my first two fingers. Yeah. And I don't grip the rod. I just balance it there. And I look down my blank as I'm doing my retrieve. And I was looking for that tip, the balance to shift from wherever it is on my fingers to the tip of my rod. Kind of like a tip down in ice fishing. Oh, cool. Yeah, I can see that's that's and that's what I set on because the takes aren't usually very savage. Usually the fish just clamps on. Yeah. And all of a sudden the tip would go down, right? Because it's so it's just you just see the balance shift to the tip of your rod, and that's what I set on. Kurt called it the rubber band retrieve. He's the one that showed it to me, so I give him full credit for it. But I've used that in a lot of places. I used it in South Africa um, to save a blank for myself in one of the lakes out there. Um, I use it a lot in Corbett. Yeah, when they get off those drops and those forty foot holes, there, um, I do it a lot there. And there's some big fish down there. When I was at Corbett the oh, yeah. week before you guys got there, doing one of my schools, and you know we were going from the lodge end of the lake down to the down up to the north end, uh, one of my favorite haunts, and there was some big fish marking over that, you know, thirty plus feet of water in there. Big marks, big sausages on the finder. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I just think they're just not active fish. They're not going to chase. So if your fly is going, you know, at any speed, they're just can't be bothered. They just don't have it in them to chase it. But if it's just there and hanging out, they'll just kind of come up and clamp onto it. And if you're waiting to feel it, you don't always feel it. But if 
I've learned if I do that balance thing and I look down the blank of my rod, it's not just the balance, it's looking down the blank too, because I got to see that your rod's always going to have a bend in it because it's a weighted line. Yeah. But you see the the balance shift to the tip and that's what I set on. That's one I use a lot when things are really, really tough in the east because I'm almost always fishing over, you know, deeper water when that, when those conditions are are going on. And for me, it's usually some type of bugger and a humongous works well, but any type of bugger with, a, I like a really long tail yep. um, on a lot of my buggers. Like two or three times a shank kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That humongous is a great fly. Uh, that works. I've had some very good days with that fly. <laughs> Do you have a particular color, the gold or the silver or just? Um, No, I don't. I don't favor one or the other. I, I usually work through them until I find the one that works. I also tie a blue body and a black hackle. So I get outside the general humongous theme sometimes, but I call them humongous just because it's got the flash and the tail and the long, yeah. the extra long marabou. Yeah. You know, I probably get yelled at because I don't have bead chain eyes. I have a bead on the hook and, you know, I don't use chinchilla hackle. I use grizzly and all of that other stuff or something else, but the style, the, the humongous style. You know, the flash is important for attraction, but also when that tail is so long, it's important to keep it from falling around the hook too. So it's got its four-man function. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, and I, I'm hoping that people listening to this, particularly my Eastern listeners, um, and when I travel out East and try to convince them that there's, there's definitely good stillwater fishing. I think I told you when we talked that flying into places like New Jersey and you descend out of the West and just see all those lakes as you come into Newark, I'm just scratching yeah. my head going, there has to be some fish in there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of those reservoirs have big fish in them too. And those reservoirs almost all have it, the alewives in them too. So that would be, a, you know, another humongous kind of opportunity. Definitely, I'd be putting big humongouses on for those kind of situations. Is there anything you'd like to add that we perhaps haven't covered or something tweaked a memory or a thought? We didn't talk too much about dry fly fishing, sure, let's, and let's go I think that's probably something that a lot of guys don't do enough, in my opinion. And I think guys, I think it comes from the river setting where they want to see rising fish to fish dry flies. And I, I admit it too, I want to see rising fish on like to fish or dry flies. But um, when the water temperatures permit fish to be near the surface, and if you have rainbow trout and they're pelagic and the surface conditions are tight or it's a ripple or it's, you know, flat calm. I wouldn't ignore, you know, on the film, on the surface presentations with a team of flies and three flies, five feet apart, you're covering a pretty good feeding lane. Yeah. Um, and it's not quite like casting the rising fish, which you should do always. Every time you see a fish rise, you should strip in and cast to it because there's a fish there and it just ate something. But even if they're not rising, they're going to be looking up. And when it's dead flat calm, anything that hits the water is going to stick in the water. Anything that comes near the surface is going to stick in the surface. So they're aware of that. So having flies there and ready for them is probably equally productive than, you know, casting out a bugger and stripping it back blindly. Yeah. I'm not saying cast it out and just let it sit there, you know, at nauseum, but make a cast count to 20, pick it up and cast to a different feeding lane. Yeah, it's pretty dynamic, isn't it? Because you're not just, like you said, you're just not pitching it out there and then slowly falling asleep. You let it sit for a second because often that splat calls them in, right? And yep, exactly. And yep. They're not there within that 10 feet. You know, I might strip it a little bit because sometimes a little bit of movement will pull them in. And if nothing, 
put it somewhere else. So it's pretty dynamic in some ways, more so than just casting, sinking, allowing the fly in line to sink and then retrieving it back, which can be to some pretty, pretty tedious, but dry fly fishing is definitely dynamic on lakes and something I don't think we do uh, as much as we should, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't think I do it as much as I should. And I do, I do it quite a bit, but I do think you should, you know, as soon as you cast it and anything you do lake fishing, as soon as you cast it a couple long strips, cause you want to get everything tight. Yeah. And when you're fishing dries, you want to get those flies. They, they may not all land five feet apart. Yeah. So those first couple strips will get them spaced apart. So you're covering as many fish as possible. And then that brings in the washing line and all of that, that Devin talked, you know, a great deal about and way better than I could ever explain it because <laughs> he's so more eloquent than I am. Yeah. We've mentioned Devin a few times. So if you're unfamiliar with that, check out the podcast I did with Devin on uh, competition um, techniques and tactics for sort of everyday fishing for the recreation or the non-competitive fly fisher. I think I phrased it. There's some good information there. So what are your, have you got favorite, favorite handful of dry flies or dry fly styles you like to use? I know you mentioned the, the beetles, ants, wasps, um, bees, those kind of things, but uh, any of the English dries you use a lot, for example, or things like that? Yeah, I pretty much only use the English dries. Um, just the, Bob's Bits is pretty much my go-to dry fly, and I tie it in black, I tie it in ginger, and I tie it in orange. So it's just seal dubbing on a hook with a hackle in the front. Typically for, for the ginger and the orange, I use a brown hackle, and for the black, I use a black hackle, just one and a half turns of, of cock dubbing in the front. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so just as much so I can see it a little bit better as it is for flotation, because the seal is going to float really well. And I tie them big. Yeah. I think a lot of guys, you know, kind of give too much credit to the trout brain. I fish in most of my dries in 10s and 12s. Yeah. Rarely do I go smaller than that, even if there's, you know, calabatus hatching. They're going to eat a ginger. Uh, Bob's bips pretty well. Yeah, I had a friend who would say, if you're hungry for an apple and there's a bowl of apples, you're going after the big one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want the French fry with a carrot on it, too. Yeah, exactly. Say it. Or the French fry with a ketchup on it, and that's what I say about hot spots. Yeah. Funny, I think when somebody ever offers you a plate of food or something like a hamburger or a hot dog or French fries, you just gravitate to the biggest one, right? Because it peaks yeah. that hunger in you, and you want it bad. So, no, that, I think that's a really, really cool tip, Lauren, that um, using the dry flies because people just think it's all – you know, from my experience talking to anglers out in the east, it's just deep water and it's too deep to fly fish. And if anything, you've proven that uh, it's anything but that. Yeah, I think it's over deep water a lot. It's, it, it's not fishing deep yes. um, much of the time, though. You know, and, and as far as dry flies go, do I do also fish, you know, a good amount of shuttlecocks when there's a midge emergence on. Um, I'm usually fishing some variation of a washing line. And a shuttlecock will be on there at some point. Sometimes there's two of them. Yeah. Which is a basically some kind of chronomid pattern with a big CDC wing. And I put six to eight CDC feathers in it. And it's long and it's big. It just makes it visible, but it cocks that fly the right way where the pupil part of it's under present, you know, presenting right. But I can see everything and it holds it up in a wave. Yeah, that tough to CDC is purely for you. Yeah. Do you do you fish it natural or do you fish some vibrant colors that maybe stand out on certain conditions? No, I th- every every CDC pattern I fish is all just the natural gray. Yeah, the the dyed ones I haven't had a hot, lot of luck with. The dyeing process kind of does something to the the fabric of the of the CDC fibers and fibrils themselves, and it doesn't 
perform the way I want it to. Um, I will use some dyed stuff subsurface, but for dry flies, I stick to the natural CDC. Hopper patterns, I do fish too. They're good terrestrial kind of patterns and caddisy kind of patterns. I do fish caddis. If there's caddis out there, I'll put a caddis on. Damsel flies. If there's damsels on the reeds, I'm going to put a damsel on. I'm not going to put a bob's bits on. You mentioned hoppers. Are we talking English style hoppers or North American style hoppers? Both. Both. Yeah, I, I kind of sway towards the English style hopper with the pheasant tail legs. Um, I just think they're sexier, but <laughs> I do have foam hoppers and there are times, not so much in the East, but out West where they can be important at the right time of year when the wind, then it's windy and they're up in the air currents and dropping out over the middle of the lake or get blown off the bank. Um, I would not want to have them in a box. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Well, that's cool. Well, that's cool. So anything else at all? Anything you think of or... Well, I could probably talk to you for like eight hours, but yeah. we don't want to leave it that open. We don't want to leave it that open-ended. Yeah, I just think that, you know, the, the East Coast, the fish just prepared, the fishing is different than it is in the West. There's no, absolutely no doubt about it. Would I say it's better? No, it's the East Coast fishing. It, it is what it is. It's here for anybody who wants it. Um, there are trout to be caught. All the techniques will work. You just have to think a little bit differently than than what you would be if you're fishing a lake that only has trout in it. I think that's the biggest overriding factor in the East is there's not only trout and the trout know that. Yeah. And they behave differently because of that. Is there a lot of people like yourself starting to, you know, fishing lakes out East or you, you by yourself, are we perhaps giving away your, your own little private Idaho to coin a phrase? (laughs) Absolutely not. I have, I have nothing secret, nothing private. And anybody's welcome to come and join me if they can put up with it. I mean, it takes a special kind of person to sit in a boat and fish flies to trout. And, you know, sometimes you're not catching them. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's just so much to learn. There's so much to figure out and it's so easy to get discouraged quickly. Yeah. So, you know, Bluetooth speakers help having somebody in a boat to talk to helps, you know, having a good beverage in the boat helps. I'll be out in Marlboro and Edison <laughs> this year. So if you're out that way, drop by and we'll have a coffee or something else and we can sit and talk for hours and people will think we're just two crazy people. <laughs> Yeah, we probably are. <laughs> That's okay. It's a good kind of crazy. So, Lauren, <laughs> if if somebody wanted to speak more to you, how would they get? What's the best way to get a hold of you if they wanted to? Probably the best way to get a hold of me to get a response is by email, mm-hmm. and that's my first and last name with five nine five after it, and that's a Gmail account. Okay. So that's Lauren Williams at five nine five at gmail dot com. Lauren Williams five nine five at gmail dot com. Okay, and we'll have that in the show notes too. So. All right. And you do the social media at all? Probably not. I am on Facebook. I'm not a, I'm not an influencer by stretch of the imagination. I'm more there just to keep tabs on my family. And, um, but people can reach me there. It is not absolutely not a problem with it. Okay. And then I'm at Adipose fan on, uh, Instagram. Yeah. And you can also message you through there, right? Sure. Yeah. Anybody's welcome to mess me, message me about anything. I'm, uh, case study for introverts. <laughs> I always look angry and miserable. I'm really not. I just look that way. So <laughs> forgive me if I come across as unapproachable. I'm not. <laughs> I just look that way and sound that way. Uh, this has been great, Lauren. I've really enjoyed this. I think it scratched an itch. A lot of my listeners, particularly those out East have, have asked about, um, you know, is it possible to, to fly fish lakes out East? And the answer is an obvious yes. Um, and we talked about the equipment, your gear preferences, all of that stuff. Uh, 
and some great uh, tactics and techniques we talked about as well. I learned listening to some stuff. You talked about some interesting concepts there that I'm I'm looking forward to adapting to my repertoire. That's half the fun I think of doing these uh, podcasts as I get to learn as much as the listeners do. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. And um, I look forward to one day we'll meet somewhere on the water and can bore the heck out of each other. <laughs> well, we should plan to do that. Yeah, we should. Otherwise, it won't happen. Nope. Let's make a plan for it. So uh, all right. hopefully I'll see you at East. All right, Lauren, thanks so much. And uh, again, all the information on a lot of this, um, for those of you listening, will be in the show notes section of the podcast, including Lauren's contact information. So I encourage you to uh, to check that out. And uh, if you're living out east or you're out east, get out there and fly fish some of those lakes out there because I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised at the opportunities you're going to have before you. So thanks again, Lauren. Thank you so much, Phil. I appreciate it. I want to thank Lauren for taking the time to join us today. I felt we could have talked for hours about stillwater fly fishing eastern lakes and lakes in general. As you heard, Lauren shares a passion for stillwater fly fishing and spending time on his eastern lakes. If you want to reach out to Lauren about fly fishing eastern lakes or stillwater fly fishing in general, please visit the show notes section for Lauren's contact information. Until next time, I hope you can get out on one of your favorite lakes and give some of Lauren's tactics, techniques and flies a try. If you live in eastern North America, consider fishing one of your local still waters. Armed with Lauren's knowledge and advice, you should have some success. Thanks again for listening. That was Phil Roy on the Littoral Zone, part of the Wet Fly Swing podcast and Swing Outdoors. Wanted to give Phil a big thank you for another great episode. I hope this special series gives us a chance to let Phil up the level for all of us through this podcast. You can send any feedback you have to me dave at wetflyswing.com or check in with phil anytime i hope you've been enjoying this podcast series and i can't wait till we get the next episode of the littoral zone out there one big reminder we are going to be doing some stillwater schools around the country if you're interested anytime you can check in wetflyswing.com slash stillwater school and uh, you can find out where we're heading next all right thanks for stopping in today See you on the next episode of The Littoral Zone.